You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. But of course, I am, uh, I am glad that you guys are all here with us this morning. Um, and uh, especially, um, especially because we have been more than a year into meeting remotely and being remotely on Zoom uh, for meetings, if you're doing that for work or just connecting with friends, um, there is a very real thing of Zoom fatigue and, uh, and I'm always so appreciative of you guys being here. That's something that's been really important um, for me. And I know it is for many of you as well. Uh, and I did want to let you know, next week, we are having a board meeting. And we're going to be discussing, again, what it looks like for us to safely come back together and when we can expect to, to start doing that. So um, we'll be sharing with all of you kind of the conversations we're having and we're going to involve all of you in that as well um, because we want to make sure that as we do come back together that we're doing so in a way that leaves space for everybody and is comfortable for um, everybody in this community no matter where you are Um, and uh, Aiden and I um, have just started to touch base a little bit um, about uh, what it might look like for us to connect so Aiden and I are going to be meeting together about uh, Uh, making this kind of virtual space something that we can keep on having, um, especially for those of you who aren't currently here in Los Angeles. Um, So thanks for being church with us. I know I say things like that a lot, but um, uh, I can't tell you how appreciative I am of you being a part of this community. Um, And today is Mother's Day. And uh, if you've been with Central for um, any length of time, then um, you know that we kind of handle and talk about Mother's Day differently um, than uh, maybe some churches that you would have grown up in. And I point that out because we recognize very much the complexity of what this day is. Um, That Mother's Day can be a day of great celebration, Um, depending on a relationship you have with the people in mothering roles in your life, or if you are in a mothering role in your life, it can also be a really painful um, and complicated day. Um, If you have difficulties in certain relationships, or um, if it's just, um, yeah, if you've wanted to be a mother, if you've lost a mother, um, there's so many things that make this a complicated day. And for many of us, I would imagine that there's both of those happening um, at the same time. And so wherever you find yourself, this service this morning, as we talk about mothering and Mother's Day and what that means, um, um, it's my hope that, uh, that there will be space for each of us to be exactly where we are. Um, and so as we uh, open this morning, um, I wanted to share with you, uh, this is a hymn uh, called Mothering God, You Gave Me Birth. And it was written um, in the 90s by Jean Janis, um, but it's based on 
the 14th century mystic Julian of Norwich. Um, and I think it's kind of a really beautiful look at kind of the mothering aspect of God uh, in this faith that we have and share together. So as we open our service, would you join me in prayer? Mothering God, you gave me birth in the bright morning of this world. Creator, source of every breath, you are my rain, my wind, my sun. Mothering Christ, you took my form, offering me your food of light, grain of new life, and grape of love, your very body for my peace. Mothering spirit, nurturing one, in arms of patience hold me close, so that in faith I root and grow, until I flower, until I know. God of love and light, God of nurturing and caring. God of new life and new birth in each one of us. We thank you for the strong feminine aspects of the divine the nurturing, the caring, the creating, those things that often take a back burner in the way we talk about God as male and masculine. But you call each one of us into these things. We are all a balance. We all need nurturing and we're all called to nurture. And as we embrace what it means to be a part of nurturing and caring, of receiving love and nurture and care, um, that's how we get to enter into this kingdom, this world that you're creating. Allow us to be part of that transformative work. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to share two things this morning as we're talking about um, about Mother's Day. The first is a piece from uh, Anne Lamott, and it's something that she shares every year. Um, so if you follow her at all or her work, you may have seen or come across this. Um, one of the things I love about uh, about Anne Lamott is just how I'm um, kind of raw and I mean if there was one thing I could describe her as it would be like a no bullshit um she just kind of speaks about life from her experience and she's rough around the edges and it's truly wonderful I think she's she is a mystic herself and is somebody who is um um unbelievably nurturing um but I wanted to share this with you as, uh, you know, it's something that I think has kind of helped kind of reframe and reshape. So it's, it is rough around the edges um, and, uh, and we won't only stay here, but, um, 
I think you may be able to find yourself in part of this here. And I can share this in the link uh, uh, in the chat as well. And she says, here's my annual Mother's Day post, only for those of you who dread the holiday, for those who had an awful mother or a mother who recently died or who wanted to but didn't get to have kids or who had kids who ended up breaking your heart. Mother's Day celebrates a huge lie about the value of women, that mothers are superior beings, that they have done more with their lives and chosen a more difficult path. Ha, every woman's path is difficult. And many mothers were as equipped to raise children as wire monkey mothers. I say that without judgment, it's true. An unhealthy mother's love is withering. I hate the way the holiday makes all non-mothers and the daughters of dead mothers and the mothers of dead or lost children feel the deepest kind of grief and failure. The non-mothers must sit and pretend to feel good about the day while they're excluded from a holiday that benefits nobody but Hallmark and sees. There's no refuge. Mothering perpetuates the dangerous idea that all parents are somehow superior to non-parents. Meanwhile, we know that many of the most evil people in the country are politicians who have weaponized parenthood. Don't get me wrong, there were a million times I could have literally died of love for my son. I felt stoned on his rich, desperate love for me. But I bristle at the whispered lie that you can know this level of love and self-sacrifice only if you're a parent. What a crock. But my main gripe about Mother's Day is that it feels incomplete and imprecise. The main thing that ever helped mothers was other people mothering them, including aunties and brothers, a chain of mothering that keeps the whole shebang afloat. No one is more sentimentalized in America than mothers on Mother's Day, but no one is more often blamed for the culture's bad people and behavior. You wanna give me chocolate and flowers? Great, I love them both. I just don't want them out of guilt and I don't want them if you're not going to give them to all the people who helped mother children. I don't want something special. I want something beautifully plain. Like everything else, it can fill me only if it is ordinary and available to all. Um, so wherever you find yourself this day, um, one thing that I wanna make sure we recognize is that as wonderful as our relationships with mothers can be, um, that that nurturing aspect is actually something that um, we all get to partake in. Um, and that we have an interesting way of lifting up mothers and cutting them down at the same time in our culture. Um, but like I said, I also don't want to just leave things there. So I would also like to invite you to join me in this prayer. It's a um, short responsive reading by Fran Pratt um, about the great mother God and opens up much more uh, about um, mothering as well. So I'll share this again. And as, uh, as uh, we typically do here, I'll read the parts not in bold and we'll pray together the parts that are in bold.
Let's pray. Great Mother God, who created mothers and invented mothering, mother us now into your peace and comfort, into your nurturing love, into the kindness of your presence, into the shadow of your We know that mothering takes many forms and is done by many kinds of people in different ways and situations. Give us the wisdom of your mother heart. We know that love is risky. There's always the possibility of pain, the risk of disappointment or loss. Give us the courage of your mother heart. We bring to you the cares of the brokenhearted. We bring to you the pain of the disappointed. We bring to you the hardship of the overwhelmed. We bring to you the ache of the separated. Teach us the worth of our own souls and the value value of our existence. Give us your mother love to To heal heal us, us, to to nourish us, us, to share share freely with the world. world. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Bob. As we do each week, we'll be taking communion. And so if you haven't grabbed anything yet, feel free to take a moment and do so. Um, I'm going to share, if you've been around uh, Central for um, at least a couple of years, um, you've probably heard this at varying points. We're going to share a communion liturgy written by Sochi Alviso. Um, she's a radical feminist theologian that spoke at our church, I feel like twice. Um, uh, okay, good. Bob's giving me the head nod. Um, but um, just uh, just a phenomenal perspective and a re-telling sort of of the communion story um, that focuses on um, mother and the divine feminine and um, uh, a new kind of approach to how we conceptualize both Christ and communion. So I'll put it in the chat too, but um, hear these words as we take communion. Before Jesus, Mary, proto-priest of the new covenant. Before Jesus with his mother, before supper in the upper room, breakfast in the barn. Before the Passover feast, a feeding trough. And here, the altar of earth, fair linens of hay and seed. Before his cry, her cry. Before his sweat of blood, her bleeding in tears. Before her, his offering, hers. Before the breaking of bread and death, the breaking of her body in birth. Before the offering of the cup, the offering of her breast. Before his blood, her blood. And by her body and blood alone, his body and blood and whole human being. The wise ones knelt to hear the woman's word and wonder. Holding up her sacred child, her spark of God in the form of a babe, she said, Receive and let your hearts be healed, and your lives may be filled with love, for this is my body, and this is my blood. And with that, I invite you to take the body, the bread, whatever you have today, um, at your own pace. And likewise, the cup.
Amen. Angie, do we um, do we still have uh, some announcements to cover this morning? I'll turn it over to you. Thanks, Max. Just a few this week. Um, the usual, the gathering is Wednesday at 7, and Philosophy is Thursday at 6, both via the Zoom link. And then just a reminder, the next blood drive is coming up on May 20th, and then that's it. Thanks, Angie. Uh, well, now it's time for prayers of the people. Um, do we have? <laughs> Bobby, do you want to? I can tell if you're going to unmute. No, Max yeah. and I can, of course, handle this together. Um, and yeah, of course, you know, each week we set a time side for prayers to the people. And that's a space for us to share concerns going on, things that we're celebrating so that we can pray together and lift each other up. Is there anything that you'd like to share for us to pray about here this morning? Uh, my friend Shala is having some uh, medical issues and having some tests tomorrow, Bob, if we could just keep her in our mind. Yeah, of course. God, we lift up Shala um, right now. I'm so thankful for Herman's relationship with her as he's been able to uh, invest in her and be a good friend to her through citizenship processes through difficulty moving here to the states. Specifically, we lift her up right now um, with medical procedures that she has going on. We pray for her doctors and nurses that she would receive the best care um, and for peace of mind for her in an anxious time. Um, surround her with your love and support and people who can share that with her. Amen. Yeah, Cassandra shared um, here in the chat um, uh, that she'd like prayers to be able to find and hire um, the support people that they need to have a healthy functioning family. Of course, um, let's pray for that. God, we lift up Cassandra and her family um, very specifically in a difficult time uh, in a year of pandemic. Um, and uh, we pray for uh, health, um, for a healthy functioning family, um, for Cassandra, for the help and support that they need um, in order to be in that space. Um, God, we lift up the struggles that so many have had in, um, in a changing world where stress has been heightened, where people have been separated um, and not been able to see or spend time um, together with uh, communities. Um, God, we pray for both the physical needs and the mental health of um, 
of all of us in places of struggle in the midst of this. Be our comfort and be our refuge. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Anything else this morning? Well, let's also take some time to pray um, this morning for uh, Lucy and for Aaron and Emily as well. Um, if you've come in a little bit later, uh, Aaron's not here this morning because uh, Aaron and Emily's daughter, Lucy, um, hurt herself on a playground yesterday. And so they spent the night in, uh, in the hospital and she's okay. She's going to be okay, but it's been um, a very difficult process there. And, um, and she also, Lucy is just going into surgery right now. And I think that there's expectations that's going to be just fine. Um, but obviously is something that's extremely difficult and stressful. And I'm sure she's scared. And I'd imagine Aaron and Emily are scared as well uh, in that process. Um, so let's take some time to pray for them now. God, we lift up uh, Lucy, um, especially as she's going into surgery um, and any fears that she might have. We lift up Aaron and Emily as they care for their daughter and the, the fear and anxiety that that must be to watch your child go uh, away into an operating room. Um, I'm so thankful for the care that they're receiving. Um, we pray for her recovery and for her uh, health and for peace of mind for Aaron and Emily, that they would be loved and supported, and that Lucy would feel loved and supported as well. Um, pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. With that, I will turn things over to Max, who's going to lead us in a meditation this morning. Thanks, Bob. <clears throat> um, I'm going to read this morning. It's a poem um, by uh, Caitlin Shetler, um, not to be confused with Shelter, um, which she often gets confused um, with. Um, but she's a poet. She um, posted this, uh, I think she shared this last year originally, but she reshared it again um, this year. And um, I think it really speaks um, to where society and culture is at, to where we are at as a faith community um, and wrestling through um, the, the complications, the complexities um, and the beauty of the world. And, and especially um, as, as mothers and daughters and um, friends and sisters. So uh, hear, hear these uh, words, this is a poem. I'll, I'll post it um, later if people want, but it's not in text format, so I can't post it right now. God is a mother, and with that sentence, the world stops. The world always stops when women and divine co-mingle as if the feminine dilutes the miraculous, when in reality, it embodies it. When Jesus turns water to wine, they clap. But when Jesus 
but when women turn breasts to milk, they cringe. A broken man's body is celebrated each Sunday while a broken woman's body is just hidden away. And it's no wonder that mother is a word used by men to demonize those who don't claim the name and weaponize to shame those who step out of line because their ideal woman plays the role of nurturer and silencer in pews built and led by them. But when God becomes mother, she is neither quiet or compliant. She leads confidently. She questions authority. She commands respect, which might be the problem. For mother God did not gather us up carelessly, but took her time with it. She fed us milk, birthed our souls, and broke her body, and the permanence can be uncomfortable. And to disentangle God from motherhood is impossible, but to disentangle God from womanhood is sinful. Because seeing God as mother is one step closer to seeing God in me, and it's in that I am truly born again. Thank you, Bob, for finding that and doing that. So um, uh, we can just take a minute um, if you want to read through it again. I'm not going to read it through again, um, but let's just take a moment um, on our own to read it through as, as Bob puts it there in the chat. Thanks, Bob. Amen. So as we mentioned, <laughs> um, Aaron's out. So um, we have chosen not to continue the uh, series that Aaron had started in terms of, I think he's calling it Luminaries. Um, he's going to talk about Rob Bell, I think, today. Um, and I think, as he said, and maybe Pete Rollins, if there's enough time. <laughs> I feel like we could just tack that onto any sermon we do and it'd probably be accurate. We talk, we'll talk about Pete Rollins if there's enough time. Um, so instead of, instead of doing that, we'll, we'll plan to pick that up again next week. Um, but we, we thought we could create some space um, for those who are wanting to process, um, wanting to discuss um, sort of the topics um, that we've raised today in terms of seeing the feminine in God, seeing God as woman or mother. Um, as the poem I just read starts off, right? We, that, that concept, that word, that sentence often stops a lot of conversations. I can think of many folks <laughs> in my mind, in my life, who would just take such offense to seeing that. Yet it's so deeply um, rooted in not only our own experience of God and our own understanding of who God is, but in scripture itself um, and, in, and in the biblical tradition and the witness um, of, of women uh, throughout the entire history of the church. And it's often said, um, without women preaching, there would be no gospel. 
um, because when the men, his followers, his disciples were all scattered and um, cowardly hiding, I've seen it put, it was the women that went to the tomb and saw the emptiness of it and then came out um, and went and told everyone. So it's, it's, it's interesting, it's sad, it's demoralizing sometimes to see different parts of the church um, having come so far away from where the good news started in terms of um, how we elevate women. Um, so um, we can have a discussion about that. Bob, do you wanna um, add anything else to that before opening it up? Okay, he just took a bite. I was actually just waiting for you to take a bite of food to ask you a Thank question. Thank you, I appreciate that. Um, gosh, no, I, um, I'm actually, I'm so much more interested in um, starting with, uh, with where you as our community uh, are, because this stuff has been complicated. I know I, for most of my life, just took it for granted, um, the idea of God being male. Um, and not like in a you know, it's just so ingrained in the patriarchy of our culture um, and in the patriarchy of our faith. Um, so, you know, the like you mentioned, Max, that um, women are the bearers of the gospel is one of the most scandalous things about um, about the Christ story and uh, and about you know, the, the history of the church is that it starts with women who couldn't even give testimony in court. Um, that's the kind of God that we have. Um, and it's just one more way of, of God using marginalized and oppressed people and being the advocate of marginalized and oppressed people. So as we have taken that on more and more as an identity here at Central, um, you know, that's even more so that uh, this very first step is the one that we still need to be doing so much work on uh, in the church. And um, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm also just really interested to hear what any of the stuff that we've talked about is, or the whole idea of femininity in our faith and in um, the Bible and in the gospel. I know I, I, I wanted to frame a question. I'm just curious because we come from so many different traditions and um, upbringings and churches. Did any of you grow up already um, with the concept of, um, you know, God as mother as well as father um, or God as um, non-binary even? I know probably most of us, that wasn't a heavily used term um, when we were growing up, but the concept of, you know, I'd always hear that God doesn't have a gender. But also, you need to pray to the father because the father is the one in charge. And you need to pray to the son because he's the one that saves us, right? And the Holy Spirit might or might not be feminine, but the, the Holy Spirit doesn't have a gender. It's like, so it's like, okay, so <laughs> there's still this deep, as Bob said, this deep tie into patriarchy that's always like, even if it tends to give a little like leeway, pulls it back really quick to say like, we can't. We can't go too far in how we play with this idea. So I'm just curious if any of you um, were, were raised in that. I know I know we have a number of folks who come from the Catholic Church, and 
Um, there's, I know, a, a, a focus on um, Mary in, in, in a much more important way than many of our Protestant traditions. Um, so I know I've talked with some folks from that tradition that have kind of a different um, perspective on it too. But any of you with interesting stories or ideas or thoughts as you've processed that as you've, as you've come up through different traditions? Desiree says, nope. Nope, as in you're never like introduced as as God as a feminine, yeah, right. Well, I don't know if it's interesting, but um, Luis and I both grew up in the Catholic Church and um, grew up with our families having a lot of uh, Mary uh, deco, if you will, all around the houses. Now, our um, for me, my family was still very patriarchal, <laughs> mind you, um, even though they had the uh, worshiping of Mary and all that. But it was very comforting as a child to see all around my my aunt's homes and my cousin's homes, Mary and the importance of her as a woman. I really uh, looked up to her. And I really do like that part about the Catholic Church. Yeah, going off of that, like, it's funny, there's some like traditions or things that I hear in Mexico where like they'll pass, they'll be committing a crime and then they'll pass a statue of Mary and then they'll stop, you know, uh, cross their face with the cross and then they'll continue going on, just kind of giving respect to her. And it's just, um, and then the, the Catholic school that I went to, when we did have retreats, we would always end the day by going to Mary and praying to her and kind of giving our respects because she was the mother of Christ and so she deserved just as much respect as he did. And she was the one who told him to turn water into wine. So there, it was kind of interesting just to have this motherly, um, I don't know, presence in the faith. And it's, um, it's interesting to me to hear it on the other side, how, you know, Protestants and everyone else kind of put Mary on the back burner, it seems, or just haven't put her in the forefront as much as Catholics have. Um, that was something that I learned just kind of coming here as well. Thank you both so much for sharing. Yeah, a lot, there's a lot of good, a lot of good stuff to go on, um, to go on there. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. I, I can, not having grown up in that um, and coming from the other side, uh, I would say I didn't really care very much until I became very much like a, a super evangelical later on. Um, and at that point I didn't, you know, like I was very put off by kind of the notion of worship of Mary. Um, and then of course that's not actually what's going on or how any Catholics would talk about their faith and their reverence for Mary. Uh, and I find myself now um, you know, leaning in toward those Catholic traditions and those things that were so hard before are interestingly things that can seem liberating, at least to me now. But yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. It's really great. I'm just wondering um, what experience people <clears throat> might have when they, if they push back with the scripture that says, um, God is neither male or female, but his spirit. And also the scripture that says, call no man on earth father, for you have one father, which is in heaven. And I'm just wondering if anyone has experienced with 
you know, a pastor in their church or something um, with their explanation of that and how it relates to a patriarch, I can't pronounce our patriarchal society. You know what I mean? Patriarchal. You got it. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a good question. Max, can you hear me? This is I can, Doug. Yeah. Oh, I had I was in, I was muted all the time. You were talking about things, including the prayers. Or oh, I'm sorry. Prayers, and uh, I did want to say that I think Father's Day is great. I think Mother's Day is even greater. She was the uh, Mary was the father of or the mother of. Christ, and uh, I think that the term uh, birth person is very disrespectful for motherhood. They went through a lot of pain. They raised a lot of pains, and I think they're the greatest, and they should be one and the same, of course, but uh, I really disapprove of the word birth person. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. I mean, sorry. Thanks, Doug. I was looking at what Bob. I'm trying to figure out if you're if you're referencing something specific that was read this morning. But yeah, thanks. Um, yeah. <clears throat> sorry. Go ahead, Doug. And and just in general, the oh, okay. Gotcha. And I yeah. also uh, uh, I, I wish you could have the mute stay on longer. I have a hard time reading it all sometimes. Is that can be adjusted? The words that uh, like Bob shares. Yeah. The. the uh, yeah. Yeah. The, yeah, the uh, reading. Yeah. No. no. I'm, I'm trying to think. It's the what people put on. I'm sorry. Lost yeah, the word. Of course. We can. We, we can, can absolutely do that. Okay. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Doug. Anybody want a response to the word birth parent, a birth person? I don't know if I've fully actually heard that term before um, you used it, but yeah, I, I, what I hear, what I hear in your, in your comment is that you think there's something that's, um, that deserves a, a, like an additional rec recognition of all that a mother has to go through to bring life into the world. And like, that, yeah, and that there's there's something intrinsically valuable in that that you that you don't want to lose, and I think that's an honorable intent. Um, I yeah, I definitely I definitely hear, and I join you in honoring all of those who um, have gone through that um, for for us to be here. Um, so I, I hear that um, very much. That this a, a good reminder for this Mother's Day. So I I I just wanted to ask. Um, uh, and then we'll probably wrap up in, in just a, a minute here. But I just, I just wanted to ask if anyone had had the personal experience of, of going through and having to wrestle with with themselves the concept of holding um, God as being neither neither male nor female, right? I think um, Randy reminds us I, Galatians comes comes to mind in that. Um, but also wanting to understand God as 
as something bigger than you were given, I guess is the best way to say it. And what, what that process was for you and the realizations that um, it's a hard thing to do when all of our language is so gendered and when all of our songs, right? I know I come from that perspective, are so gendered um, towards masculinity, towards patriarchy, um, when we sing about God, when we sing about our faith, um, I'm just curious if any if any of you have struggled in that process and if you found anything that has helped you through it, because I know a lot of us are at different places along that journey and often um, take really good uh, notes in terms of what other folks have gone through that might help them on their journey. So I'm just curious if anyone's gone through that, if anyone's going through that and has any um, any realizations that you've discovered of yourself or others um, along that journey as you as you make that mental shift? Hello. Yeah, Max. I have I have a thought. On some of that. Hey. Um, you know, it, and I started thinking about it when you know with what Randy had said. You know, language. I think if you think about thought, right, as a dialogue with yourself, then the concepts available to you come from the language that you speak. And all of the languages that contributed to the Bible came from patriarchal cultures. So the actual concept of authority was inherently male in those language, languages, to the point where in many people, if you refer to God as, say, female, to make a point, it actually resonates as irreverent, uh, offensive, or something like that, because it's, it's like the counter. So if you add that to, you know, a lot of us that grew up in, um, you know, say evangelical context where you had Sunday school illustrations and stuff like that. Well, as an artist, when I was pretty young, people would ask me like, hey, you know, you should illustrate the Bible. And I was always like, no. Um, and one of the reasons was, you know, for me, I, every, every uh, Sunday school thing was white people. Right. And they, you know, they had different types of fashions that they would try to do, kind of have a Middle Eastern look. But I had already seen enough variations to where I wasn't sure what they would actually look like. So I make this point to say that we almost have to attack all the images that we have. Right. So you have the layer of language, but if you go behind that, you're actually attacking the layer of, of images and like what are the cards we're playing with when we think um because god did create male did create female and did create every other circumstance that exists that we then created words for to try to box in and that's the part that that really is um that needs to be challenged um i had a conversation with my brother-in-law and i was trying to make this point that we don't have many kings anymore. There's a few, um, you know, uh, and we really don't have emperors in any meaningful way, right? But a king of kings is an emperor who probably murdered a lot of kings. So if you refer to God as a king of kings, you're saying murderer of a lot of you know, people who murder other people, right? So it's this kind of chain of violence. And so in that time, if you had to have a metaphor for supreme authority, you would say a king of kings. But today, that doesn't mean the same thing. 
but the word still exists in the book, right? So we have to understand what they might have meant by that phrase, as opposed to taking it literally as what it would mean for us today. So. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, JP. That was made a, a number of super helpful points. And I think that, I think that's it, right? Yeah, that's like many of the other um, issues we talk about, right? And many of the other subjects we talk about it, through deconstruction, the whole, the whole reason is called deconstruction, right? And not just like, you know, a new coat of paint is that everything's connected. And when you start tearing down walls and taking out support beams, you realize that they are all are dependent on themselves. So yeah, you brought up a couple really great points. You know, patriarchy doesn't happen in a vacuum. Um, there's, you know, um, racial um, supremacy uh, involved. Um, there's gender superiority. There's um, um, language uh, itself, right? As you said, acts as a tool to frame reality. And yeah, thanks, thanks for noting many of the languages and the cultures from which these texts arise were inherently patriarchal. And so even if it wasn't intended, the language around power, et cetera, was tied to being male. Um, so there's, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of deconstruction and going back um, in order to really rip out the root of, of why we have these concepts of something ineffable like the divine. Um, so some really, really good points there. Oh yeah, without question. And I'm, JP, as you're talking about that, it reminds me how much I still struggle with this in my, even in my Christian language. Like I've let go of a lot, but I still do things like talk about the kingdom of God, which carries that like hugely patriarchal um, and oppressive, uh, particularly to women, um, but really to anybody who's not uh, the powerful king. Um, and, you know, I know Max has used several times kingdom, um, which is kind of a feminist, like retooling of that word um, to kind of like, you know, usurp the patriarchy that's just embedded and drenched in it. Um, but man, we do that stuff all the time. I remember also how uncomfortable I felt talking about God as female and saying things like mother God. And even after I was like fully accepting of the idea that, um, that God is not male and that that is problematic as, as our only framework, I still was uncomfortable with it because of kind of the newness of experience. And so it's only been through like intentionally trying that that one aspect is something that's changed. And there is, you know, I'm, we find new stuff in ourselves all the time of these spots that we didn't know were there until somebody or something points them out to us. And yeah, I, I appreciate that like kind of holistic approach that, we we have to take everything apart and try and put back the best thing that we can, which we'll later take apart and do all over again. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. It also gives you a little bit of empathy for people who are stuck in, um, even, you know, in evangelicalism, and because once they admit to one thing <laughs> that you know 
Jesus might not look like, you know, your Jesus. Um, he might not be white and have blonde hair and a big white beard like Santa Claus. Um, it's yeah, it gives you a little bit of a little bit of empathy, a little bit of compassion, because, you know, that once one thing goes, then they're going to have to question the other things. And it makes more sense to me why they have to be so rigid in their belief um, and why there can't be any flexibility there. Um, also makes me sad, <laughs> but, uh, I, I also wanted to reflect about, um, growing up in the evangelical church, I had friends, really, really great best friends who were, who went to a Catholic church. And I remember talking to my mom about it because they would be talking about mother Mary all the time. And I remember that being demonized by my youth pastor and how saying that they are worshiping an idol and so all of those triggers came up when, you know, I started, you know, not referring to God as a man. And I was like, wow, this is, this was really ingrained. Like this was, this was really ingrained in me. Um, but is, I didn't really, I don't know if I really had that much of a problem with it because I was raised by a single mom. And for all the attributes they give to God, I was like, wait a minute. Like my mom does all of that. Like my, my dad isn't around. My mom does all of this. And all of this seems familiar to me. Um, so when the kind of the concept was introduced, it actually didn't seem that bizarre because we are all made in, in his image. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to share that tidbit. Thanks, May. That's, that's awesome. And I hadn't thought about it from that perspective too, but that you in some ways started doing deconstruction like really early as a kid because you were, grew up in a, a situation that wasn't the typical that fit all of the roles really easily. That, I think that's awesome. And it's like, I think about that all the time and so many other things too, that, you know, inside of our privilege, it's really hard to see the experiences of other people, but other people can often share that, you know, their life experiences have always been so much different. And anyways, thanks so much for sharing that. I think too, it's easy to get wrapped up in the scripture or Paul says that the um, wife should submit to the husband as the husband submits to God as um, the head of the church, so the husband has to be the head of the household. And also um, when it talks about a woman should keep silent in church. So there's all these things that really ingrained in us in society that, you know, the man is supposed to be here and the woman here, um, which can be used for um, purposes of just power and control and a sense of identity that you're so ingrained. And if you challenge that, boy, that, you know, starts to fall apart as they said yeah but um yeah it's those scriptures about submitting and that's from god so that's the way it is and you can't argue with it or challenge it and right now yeah yeah it's great points too and that that's totally part of the the picture right and it's been handed down and you know like it's been named the way you read right scripture the way you understand what scripture is has a direct influence on how we think about these concepts and i and i hope it comes as no surprise 
to any of you, those scriptures too, right, are some of the least likely to actually be written by Paul. So was, they're, they're included in scripture hundreds of years later. And it really would seem because um, I think people, the people deciding scripture knew their power, just like you're, just like you're saying, they knew that if, if those kinds of teachings and those kinds of words could be canonized as holy scripture, and people who disagreed that with them would be heretics and literally executed for being a heretic. That, I mean, you've suddenly created this system in which it's God who's saying that women have to be subservient. It's God that's saying men are in power, not us. And, you know, cue the last 2000 years. Yeah, um, a good reminder that scripture can be weaponized and has been weaponized for a long time um to to this end so you're saying it, it wasn't paul that wrote this but someone put that in so, there yeah we should have aaron do a whole uh, mm -hmm. a whole series we haven't jumped into hermeneutics in a while um yeah essentially essentially there are there are a number of letters from paul as, as you probably know in the new testament um, many of them are called disputed letters and that is there are still scholars today that show Let's say that there is little evidence to actually prove that Paul wrote them. Um, you know, it's we can we can talk more about this, but it's like there's a whole there's a whole school of thought um, at the time where people who considered themselves Paul's follower would say this is from the word words of Paul or the mouth of Paul or the hand of Paul when it, when it was decades after Paul was actually dead, right? So Paul wasn't even alive anymore and some of these were written. So it's just the whole, it's the, it, a lot of scriptures like that. And, um, you know, the, the books that we say, oh, I like this one. And the books are like, what, how did that get in there? We're all decided by a couple of councils of all men, because <laughs> women weren't allowed. And they sat around and they argued and often got into fistfights. Um, around what got included in what we now call the Bible and what didn't. And the things that are in there, um, some of the most controversial things that are in there are some of the things that at the time, even long ago, right? They said, Paul didn't write this. Like this doesn't line up with, with what Jesus said. This doesn't line up with this other piece. And, but they, those folks lost, lost the vote, right? Lost the, lost the battle. So even early on, we see this history of co-opting the message of Jesus, right? Co-opting this radical rethinking of how the world works and how, you know, the religious elite are actually brought down and how the marginalized are actually lifted up. Like that's the core, right? That's why people come back to the gospels and, and Jesus's, um, the stories around Jesus and the parables. And, and already a couple of decades later, right? There's folks trying to, men trying to add in. And also, <laughs> you know, women can't talk in church. And also like, uh, slaves need to return to their masters. And also, right, so there's, there's, all these, there's all these pieces where you see really early on our, um, our thirst for power and um, dominance. And it's, it's tough, what, it's sad. Is that what happened to Mary Magdalene? That the fact that um, the gospels say she was a prostitute yeah. but she really wasn't and men just added that? There are, I would say yes. There are a lot of um, a lot of scholars, especially recently, that are trying to rebuild the image of Mary Magdalene. And yeah, there are many many scholars who say the idea of her, you know, being a prostitute, etc., was was an intentional discrediting 
uh, later because there are many people that feel that Mary Magdalene and Jesus had a much closer relationship than the church um, is willing to grapple with. Um, yeah, so, and, and again, it's the women part, right? So it's women are constantly discredited through the biblical witness, um, you know, are disempowered through the way the church is structured. It, it, it started happening earlier, early on in the process of forming the religion and hasn't, hasn't stopped, unfortunately, in, in many, many, many churches. Mm. Um, do you know of any um, good books or documentaries that would kind of expound on how the Bible became ours and what Ooh, that is? For sure. Yeah, for sure. I, I, uh, I, the ones that come to mind immediately, first of all, hey, full circle, uh, we were going to talk about Rob Bell today, Aaron was going to, and we probably still, still will, but uh, one of his more recent books, actually, it's, is it How We Read the Bible? His is called, or is that Pete Enzis? It's called What is the Bible? What is the Bible? I'll drop the link. Thank you. And then, uh, so that one does a really good job of just kind of walking through, like, hey, this is this is how like the Bible is created and how we read it matters. I would say another one is Pete Enns. It's how the Bible actually works. Um, yeah. Subtitles in which I explain how an ancient, ambiguous, and diverse book leads us to wisdom rather than answers and why that's great news. Um, there are a bunch, I'm sure we can, probably some more radical uh, theologian takes on it too. If anyone else has uh, read anything that helps um, them process hermeneutics, et cetera. I think I would, I would honestly, I, I would also say James Cone um, and um, liberation theology, um, James Cone's The Cross and the Lynching Tree. It's probably one of the ones that's most impactful for me. Mm-hmm. Um, anyone else have good books they've read that helps them understand how they read the Bible? Or how it actually became our- to being. Yeah. yeah. I'm wondering if that um, ties in with the creation story, blaming the woman for the fall and maybe leaving out that Lilith was created before Eve, but she rebelled against Adam and left. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so that didn't make it. Theology yeah. is so much wider than the narrow aspect that gets included in our canon of scripture. And, you know, there were people that made decisions on what became scripture and what didn't, but I love reading the things outside of it too, because it helps, you know, what I, the, the Bible for me um, is the story of people trying to understand who God is. And so God changes throughout the Bible. Uh, and that used to make me really uncomfortable. Um, but when you realize it's written by, you know, a hundred plus authors uh, and, and editors who kind of revamped and retook things. It's a, it's like the unfolding story of how the people of God understood who God was. Um, so the reading the things even outside of that, I think are really interesting and helpful. It's the mythology around uh, creation and, and so much is just fascinating. Um, Rene, I'm also going to share it. This isn't about the, this isn't specifically about how the Bible was written, but it is a, uh, uh, about a lot of the passages that are used in harmful ways. Um, Nadia Boltz Weber's first book, Accidental Saints, uh, this one right here actually, is a fantastic kind of look because she is 
one of my favorite uh, authors and, and writers in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, she's also extremely progressive, but very orthodox. I mean, like her faith is very much, you know, um, like she kind of holds to a very classical Christian faith inside of the Lutheran tradition and is radically progressive as a, a pastor and a human being. She does a really great job talking about some of those difficult scripture passages and uh, how she wrestles with them. I would, I would also say too, because you mentioned documentary, I think, uh, I think there are some connections within our own community on the development of this movie. I, I don't know if it's out yet, if it is, if anyone's seen it, but the movie 1946 um, was hotly anticipated and already being discredited by uh, the conservative wing of the uh, Christian movement, um, but it, it focuses on the word homosexuality and how it was not added to any translation of the Bible until 1946. Um, and so it gets very deep, to my understanding is very deep into the history of the words that were selected um, and the translations that were used over the hundreds of years and how the Bible has taken on sort of a completely new identity in some of these um, social issues um, more and how, how it's morphed. So I'd throw that one in the mix. I haven't seen it yet, but I hear it's really good. And um, maybe it was men who took out the part where God created Adam and Steve. I don't know. <laughs> you might have an alternative life. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah, it went, once the questions start, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot there to ask. Yeah, this is interesting because I know that there were certain things that were written and then some things were like not chosen to be in the Bible. Um, was there any, I don't know, female writers that just like had stories that were just completely thrown away or not even recognized? I would say yes. Um, I think by by definition, <laughs> um, it's kind of kind of tough to keep record and to get a really good understanding of it. But there is a gospel of Mary. Um, um, let me pull it up. Yeah, there's a Gospel of Mary um, discovered in 1896, 5th century papyrus codex. Essentially, it's the story of Mary Magdalene. Um, there's, there are some real fun pseudo, pseudopigrapha, if anyone wants to write that down, that's P-S-E-U. Um, pseudopigrapha is this, uh, a non-canonical text. There's a ton of books that were written, right? And that's what these councils did is they sat, and again, all men, um, they sat around and decided, okay, this book can be in the Bible, but this one's not. And then they'd have debates and saying, well, why not this one? And they'd say, well, this one says this one thing about Jesus, and that would that would make all this stuff not true, so we can't use that. Um, and they'd get in these arguments. And so some of those, right? So like gospel, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, you know, was, I, I think that's around the time when... <laughs> Um, you know, probably linked of saying like, oh no, we need to make sure she's understood as a prostitute. So then everyone will understand, oh, we can't take her word as, as canon. So um, I think beyond that, it's, it's hard. It's hard to tell too, right? Because um, the way things were written and authorship in general was so different than like I was mentioning earlier, right? So Paul, so many, and Timothy, so many, uh, uh, books and letters are just said, hey, this is written by so-and-so. 
when it was literally a hundred years after that person had died. It was, but the tradition was to carry on the tradition of an author. So there are lots of folks who we will never know the names of who actually wrote the stuff that we read. Um, so many of them could have been women. Um, I think the vast majority were men. And as, as you noted, many of the women were discredited. Many of the writings were seen as non-authoritative. Um, yeah. Isn't that what, gone a different way. what happened to the gospels too, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were not written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? But <laughs> yeah, we're, we're getting into an old fashioned Bible study here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a great question, right? Um, there's, so Mark is the oldest gospel. Um, and so Matthew and Luke are known as um, symmetric, uh, synoptic gospels. Um, and so they, they literally like use Mark as a source material and then they, they bring it to different audiences. So Matthew's main concern is writing to the Jews of the first century. Um, um, and Luke is, is writing to the Gentiles. So you'll see these different themes, these different parables kind of raised out. Um, and uh, they uh, essentially, no one knows <laughs> uh, who wrote them, but they are written in the voice of Mark, in the voice of Matthew, in the voice of Luke. Um, they think Luke is the same author as Acts, right? And they, the tradition holds that he was a physician um, and, a, and a Gentile. So there's been, <laughs> there's been tradition and histor historicity developed around these over the last 2000 years. So to even have a conversation about like, hey, so-and-so wrote this and didn't write this and so-and-so write this, is such a deep pool that you have to just go swimming around in um, because there's been thousands of years of investigation and edits and changes. Um, but yeah, so the earliest gospel they think was written in the, in the mid sixties AD. So roughly about 30 years after Jesus died. So again, these are the gospels, right? So these are the most primary source material we have about Jesus's life. The earliest record we have is that um, the earliest one was written 30 years after Jesus died. So that's the, I'm 30, I'm almost 34, right? So literally it would be like, if Jesus died before I was born. And then I, I started writing about Jesus and his life now. Um, would be the would be the actual difference between the earliest gospel writer and Jesus actually living. So there's lots of questions of who did write this? What does it mean that Mark wrote it? Um, what does it mean that Matthew wrote this? Is that a tradition? You know, is that a person? But the bigger one is, does that matter? Right? How do we come to the Bible? What do we think these books are? Um, is our is our understanding of the truth that they reveal connected to who wrote it? Um, and I would say in many ways, yes, right? Um, like we've been talking about, there are layers that are important to understand so you can help separate out the culture, cultural patriarchy, right? The cultural um, biases. And then I would say the beauty of the Bible and why it remains the most you know, sold book of all time is that it speaks to timeless truths about humanity and about the world and about love and about the power of peace and grace and forgiveness and justice and all the things right that we talk about and all the things that we gather around and we we hold on to the name for still um that's that's my take on it i think i think when we when we go down the road of trying to get the specific questions to authorship and timing and stuff 
you get you get stuck pretty fast because it's really it's really hard to actually get the solid answers on and then when you do the question becomes what do we do with this and how does that how does that affect how we interpret it and how we live our lives but lots of great conversations there are lots of great questions to ask and there are people that devote their entire lives to asking these questions and writing books about them I'll send you some more too, Randy. I, I know there are some that I'm not thinking of, um, but I'll, I'll send you some more recommendations as I get them. Thanks. Okay. Well, thanks for the discussion today, everyone. Um, I, I believe, I won't speak for him because I didn't get confirmation, but I believe we'll pick up the Luminaries uh, series next week. Um, so if, if you like Rob Bell, if you don't like Rob Bell, if you're somewhere in between, you can be prepping and uh, really uh, get some hard questions for Aaron and make him squirm a little bit. Um, right along those lines, um, you know, Aaron offered an invitation to share the people who've been influential for you uh, in your faith as we go through this. And I would really love to hear some of those things because that means we're going to get to do our homework um, and uh, if it's people that we're not familiar with. And um, yeah, so uh, particularly since it's Mother's Day, uh, let us know the women who have been influential for you. And, um, and admittedly, as a straight white male, I will say that most of my influences throughout my faith uh, have been also straight white men. And so that has changed more recently, but I'm always, always interested to hear what has been influential and important for you. So if you have um, people of color, people from the LGBTQIA community, women that have been influential, especially for you, um, let Max, uh, May, Aaron, or myself know, and we'll, we'll tackle those as well. Thanks everyone. Um, if you are celebrating in some way uh, today, I hope you have a good celebration and we'll, uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks mm. for being here. Thanks guys. Thanks Max. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Happy Day. Mother's Day.